0: Everyone, This is Chance Gilliam, welcoming you to another episode of Chance by Chance, a resource for young creators learning to navigate the professional field. I absolutely love today's conversation. It is one I shared with Dr. Chad Weinstein, founder of Ethical Leaders in Action. To cite an informative post on ethnact.com, their website, I quote, Too often, business ethics or professional ethics are practices that merely attempt to constrain unacceptable behavior. Our view of ethics is far more comprehensive. We see ethics as a framework for acting in ways that reflect the very best in us as human beings. We find this view expressed in multiple ethical traditions from around the world. We bring these classical ideas to bear in contemporary solutions. End quote. Chad provides leadership development and strategic consulting to organizations in for-profit, Nonprofit, and public sectors. Prior to establishing Ethical Leaders in Action, he founded the Hill Center for Ethical Business Leadership, a division of the James J. Hill Library. As you may remember, Lee Peter George was formerly the Director of Marketing and Strategic Partnerships at the very same James J. Hill Center. If you haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend visiting it after this one. You can find it on Chance by Chance. .com. Chad is also an adjunct faculty member at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Chad has been an educator, manager, and consultant for more than 20 years, serving industries ranging from consumer products, medical devices, and pharmaceuticals to mining and petroleum extraction. Most recently, he led teams and organizations in market and technology consulting as vice president of client services for Guideline Incorporated. Chad holds a PhD in ethics, philosophy, from the University of Minnesota. And in this conversation, we cover all sorts of things, his own growth and education, the development of a sustainable business, Ethical Leaders in Action. We talk about focusing on actors over actions, the dynamics of virtue, jump-starting your own character development, and so much more. As I said before, I really love this one. It was a blast, and I hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Chad Weinstein. <laughs> Chad, welcome to the show.
1: I'm really delighted to be here, Chance. Thank you.
0: Thank you for coming on the podcast. It really is a pleasure. You are the second guest my father has referred me to. Uh, I'm a big fan of your father. (laughs) Yeah, Dr. Gassaway was the first. He was on the podcast a couple months ago. And I started by asking him the same question. How did you first connect with my dad?
1: Well... For your listeners who are not aware, your dad is currently a deputy fire chief in the St. Paul Fire Department, Mm -hmm. responsible for training. And I provide leadership development training in public safety, which includes fire departments. And so I was referred to your dad when he was a captain working in that division, and his chief uh, heard about my work and became interested in it. They interviewed me, and since then, we've had the great pleasure of working together. (laughs) And how long ago was that? Must have been three or must have been four or five years ago. Okay. Um, Since then, your dad Ken and I have also collaborated on conference presentations. He's one of those people that I call for advice and for perspective. Mm. Um, You know, you can't see your own retina, and so Mm. if you're as you're working with people, you need people who you trust, um, both for their perspective. And for their, for their loyalty to help check you and keep you on track. And Ken is definitely one of those people for me. Awesome.
0: Oh, wow. That, that's awesome to hear about about my own dad.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, and so how long has uh, Ethical Leaders in Action been been rolling?
1: ELA, Ethical Leaders in Action, will celebrate its seventh birthday next month. Okay. It had a precursor as well, the Hill Center for Ethical Business Leadership, which I also ran and in 2010 the hill center essentially transitioned from a division of the hill library to my small business hmm. and that that anniversary will also be 10 years this june so been doing this work full time for 10 years 7 years under the auspices of ELA
0: and for those who don't know i guess i uh, i'm not too familiar with it either but my understanding is that the hill center is a uh, a resource for entrepreneurs I think it was founded by James Hill uh, as the resource library at first for uh, people to come in and, and learn so that the economy would continue to prosper and they started adding services and it evolved into this whole center
1: is that anywhere near correct it's absolutely <laughs> almost spot on the only friendly amendments I would offer Hill himself moved here um, and made this his hub and the people of St. Paul wanted to throw him a huge parade. Hmm. And he said, no, we don't need a parade. We need a library. Wow. (laughs) Because if we're going to keep attracting people to this community, we need cultural resources. So he created the library. His original vision was that it would be sort of the librarian's library where it would be an elite collection of reference materials. In other words, materials that don't circulate but are available for you in the library, that are that ordinary libraries could not afford to collect, hmm. and so he created this. They had Audubon prints and all kinds of sort of elite resources to make St. Paul, in particular, a cultural hub with respect to this library. Now, over the decades, the trustees and and board members of the library in. Hill's memory made that transition from a cultural resource to a business resource consistent with his wishes and consistent with his practices Mm -hmm. of entrepreneurship. And so you're absolutely right. Since at least the 1970s, the library has been absolutely dedicated toward being a site for incubating and stimulating small businesses. And in fact, in a sense, I was one of those businesses. Ethical Leaders in Action came out of this being a unit of the hill.
0: And so this precursor to ELA was for businesses in particular. How did you see a need for this and how did you approach uh, your method of of filling that need?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is the first casualty of action is the plan. Mm. (laughs) I had a plan and the reality is almost entirely different from that plan. The original plan was to work almost exclusively with small and mid-sized businesses, Mm -hmm. largely service businesses, to operationalize a positive commitment to ethics. What I mean by that is most of our energy around professional ethics and business ethics is focused on constraining bad behavior. Our entire focus is not merely on stopping people from doing the wrong thing, but encouraging them to do the best thing and helping people who are motivated to do good to succeed by virtue of that motivation. So we really help the good guys win. Hmm. And our original business plan was to work with businesses to develop business strategies that capitalize on the commitment to be excellent from an ethical perspective, not merely compliant here's where the changes took place. First, we began this business in 2007 into the teeth of the worst business economy that any one of us can remember. Hmm. Um, It really was the Great Recession. Second, part of my marketing tactics involved speaking to just about any audience that would listen to me. (laughs) And that prominently included Rotary Clubs. Hmm. And in many communities, the fire chief and the police chief and the sheriff or the sheriff's chief deputy are members of the local Rotary Club. And so I met these public safety leaders and they met me and that began a conversation. Along the way, while my original business plan was to do strategy work and really to potentially outsource the leadership development work that came out of this, the real need I found was for leadership development work. Hmm. So today, about 15% of our work is strategy, and 85% is uh, leadership development. Exactly the stuff I was gonna throw away, in a sense. I was gonna cast that off and outsource it. So we really shifted focus and became experts in leadership development over 10 years. Um, about 70% of our business is in the public sector, and we expected that to be about zero. And 30% is in the private sector. We expected that to be 100. <laughs> and. Um, The work that we do builds on um, a framework of ethics that's very, very old. It's really based on more virtue ethics, which is about the actor, rather than some of the other contemporary ethical theories that are more about the actions. So we really have focused on developing ethical frameworks that help people look at choosing the best actions, but also help them integrate their character development into their actions.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping you can say a little bit more about looking at the actor versus the actions, because it also makes me think of the reason you would focus on leadership development. There's almost a trickle-down effect. If you have a, a sound leader in place, everyone will follow that example. But can you talk some more about focusing on the actor over actions?
1: Absolutely. If you had asked an ancient Greek about ethics, he or she would not have talked about actions. They would have talked about the person. If you had asked that Greek, how shall I choose my actions, the answer would have been find an honorable person, make him or her your mentor, and learn from that experience. So the idea of focusing our ethical energies on people rather than actions is actually very old in the time of the enlightenment the 1500s and from then on we have been very invested in the idea of science of various kinds guiding our actions Mm. and so it makes sense that we've become sort of quasi scientifically focused on evaluating actions as our primary ethical mode there is still good reason to look at actions we teach all of our clients and students to look at actions through multiple ethical lenses. The lens of outcomes or consequentialism, the lens of motives or deontological or Kantian ethics, the lens of contract theory, particularly in the public sector where people's work is legitimized by the social contract that gives them the power to do their work. We enable firefighters and police officers to do their work by virtue of a social contract as much as by law. So those are all good lenses for looking at actions. Mm. But I want us never to neglect that one of those lenses is, what does this action say about me? Mm. Which of these actions is most consistent with the person I aspire to be? Which, In simple terms, which of these actions should I be proud of in the future? And why? On what basis? So, those are questions that the Greeks would have been very comfortable asking. Hmm. And the way they would have answered them would be to focus on virtues, which are qualities in us that we develop over time through our actions and reflections. So. In addition to having principles that guide our actions, we have virtues that frame our character development. Mm -hmm. These are qualities in us that we can develop like muscles over time through our actions and through our reflections on those actions. So that becomes a way to say, how do I make the best choice? Mm -hmm. How do I act in a way I will later be proud of? How can I act in a way that reflects the person I aspire to be? Definitely. Do you think that ethics or virtues
0: change over the course of generations or or evolve in any way? Or are these things or or concepts that are solidified in time?
1: It's a great question. They are inherently dynamic Hmm. and they should be. Because virtues are qualities that enable us to achieve a purpose. The Greeks would say telos. And so for the ancient Greeks that telos, first of all, only pertained to men of a certain set of families with a certain amount of resources um, in a very narrow social stratum in Athens. Uh. And their purpose, or telos, was about being a good civic participant in this tiny white man's club, basically, (laughs) right? To translate that to our thoughts, um, our virtue set, the virtue set that Ethical Leaders in Action espouses and teaches, is narrower than the Greek virtue set because it's focused not just on leading a good civic life but on ethical leadership, which we take to be empowering others to make a positive difference in the world. Hmm. So if we're serious about empowering others to improve the world, we believe that there's a set of qualities that make us effective at achieving that purpose. So we can broaden that. Faith traditions, also often embrace a virtue set that reflects their beliefs about the role of the human being and the divine. Christian virtues uh, include love of neighbor, love of God, forgiveness, um, action through faith, and so forth. Confucian virtues focus on the individual's role in the collective Mm -hmm. and adherence to tradition and piety of a very different sort that is specific to the confucian tradition and so virtues are a very dynamic set they absolutely change over time and they are absolutely specific to the context and the culture in which they arise
0: hmm. for young people who may have trouble determining values because these these are things that can uh, take time to develop. Like you said, it's just like a muscle that you have to keep working and your experiences constantly bring you to uh, reflect on what those are for you, whether you're doing it consciously or not. But are are there ways to at all jumpstart that process uh, to strengthen your values in a a short manner of time rather than just letting the world take its course on you?
1: I think that's a great question. Yes. Um, One of the most powerful things that you can do to jumpstart your character development in terms of Mm -hmm. virtues is to surround yourself with people that you admire and to have conscious, thoughtful, meaningful relationships with those people. A hero is someone we learn from at a distance. A mentor is someone we learn from through our engagement. It's okay to have heroes. It's great to have heroes. But we also need mentors. And some of those mentors might not be more experienced than us. Mm. Some of them might be peers. But what we want the people around us to be are concerned enough about us and courageous enough so that they will celebrate our successes and they'll call us on our crap. (laughs) And so my mentors will say, you know what, I think you're being selfish or I think you're being short sighted. When I agree with them, that was the best advice I could have gotten. And sometimes when I disagree with them, I reflect on that and come to find out that they were right. Other times I say, you know what, I appreciate the advice, but it's a little bit like trying on a suit that doesn't quite fit. Doesn't make it a bad suit, but it doesn't fit me right now. (laughs) So part of being using mentors is being strong enough in yourself to be really open to that input, but also to be willing to say, you know what? I appreciate it, but that doesn't fit. So those are some ways to jumpstart character development is to be strong yourself and to connect with people that you can really learn from and to engage them in that fairly intimate process of saying, how can I get better? Using this as a transition to uh,
0: start to chart the course of your life so far, can we look at your growth through school um, into the professional workforce, maybe focusing on where you were and who your notable mentors or influences were at those times.
1: Absolutely. I graduated from high school and I had always worked. In fact, I would say that working from the time that I was about 14, part-time in school and Mm -hmm. summers and so forth, was at least as important an influence as my school life was. Mm -hmm. I did okay in high school. Um, I remained conscious and I did what was expected of me and if it was interesting, I did quite well. But I did not distinguish myself academically in high school by any means. I graduated and went to the University of Wisconsin, which at the time was not very selective. Um, Their philosophy has changed a great deal since then, but in the 1980s and before, their philosophy was, as a large land-grant university, we'll give lots of kids a chance And many of them will flunk out and some will succeed. So it had a huge admission class and the highest attrition rate in the country, or one of them. And I was one of the people who didn't attrit. I graduated with a degree in philosophy. To pause you, I'm actually not familiar with that
0: term. Attrition?
1: Uh, Attrition is a term for people who um, are left out or drop out or... We'll hear the expression "a war of attrition," which is a war of grinding down your enemy till there's no one left. Jesus, right? That's a grim use of that word, but but an illustrative one. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So they had a high to say they had a high attrition rate meant there were a lot of. Um, Collateral damage, there was a lot of collateral damage in that theory. A lot of students started the University of Wisconsin and didn't finish there.
0: But you were not one of them.
1: No, I graduated with a degree in philosophy, which meant that I was unemployable, but I had a lot to think about. <laughs> I actually make that joke all the time and people love it, but I don't believe it for a minute. The fact is, a humanities education taught me to read, taught me to write, it taught me to analyze, it taught me to argue. I took enough of the other classes that I had some grounding in lots of other things. If I had been a little more mature and disciplined, I would have taken harder science classes than I did. Hmm. I would have challenged myself outside of my interest areas more than I did. But, in fact, I was a kid, and I made somewhat kid-like choices in those regards. And I came out with a pretty good education. And I went to school, or rather, I went to work, um, moved, grew up here in the Twin Cities, um, lived in Madison for college, Mm -hmm. and literally moved to Chicago because I had friends there and wasn't at all sure I could make it. But I stayed with a friend for about a month. And I found a job as a file clerk in an accounting office and uh, an apartment that I could afford on that salary with enough overtime and made sure I worked lots of overtime. And fairly quickly, that job became boring and as one would expect. And I became interested in the computer systems around the offices. Mm. And that led to a job ultimately doing data entry and data management and ultimately. Um, managing a data processing department of a law firm. Cool. And this was back in the era when people were buying PCs and putting them on their desks and you turned them on, you put a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, which was called that because it was actually floppy. And um, it said C colon backslash and that's it. So you really needed to know how to use the so computer. So this is
0: the old uh, command line interface. Absolutely.
1: Wow. Windows was not a thing yet. Yeah. And so... There was a living to be made automating small businesses with these machines, hmm. and that that's what I ended up doing, which was fascinating, about the time I decided to go back to school and study philosophy with the goal of becoming a philosophy professor.
0: And didn't you go to the University of Minnesota at that point?
1: Absolutely. What correct. brought you
0: back to the Twin Cities? Was it that school?
1: Uh, it was that school, and in all candor, it was a remarkable school and a great place but it was also one of the very few schools that made me any kind of offer because mm. most of the people being admitted to those programs had far better transcripts than I had. Sure. And so I was not in a position to be selective and the University of Minnesota was in a position to be somewhat generous and speculative <laughs> in admitting me. In fact, they told me at the time, the director of graduate studies said to me at the time, you're a walk-on, we'll give you a shot. <laughs> I wanted to be a philosophy professor, so I tried to enroll in the Ph.D. program, and they said, no, we'll give you a shot. We'll put you in the master's program, and mm. if, you just, if you make it, then you can transfer to the Ph.D. program. So I did earn the master's and then transfer to the Ph.D. program. And what caused the desire to return to school? It was a, a strong desire to be a teacher, mm. specifically a philosophy professor, mm. What I discovered in graduate school was, I love teaching. I don't love technical scholarship, which is really what being a professional philosopher is all about. Hmm. It's about doing the scholarship and teaching. And I can do scholarship, but I don't love it. I really did like that consulting I was doing, and I liked automating small businesses, and I liked working with people to solve problems. And so I finished the degree over a period of years. I worked. While I was doing that, first in the university as an academic advisor, and second, um, back in the consulting world, doing management consulting. And so that sort of continued to morph. And I never lost interest in the idea of applying ethics to the work world. And I became more and more interested in the idea of applying that positive perspective that I shared. Yeah. The ethics of being our best to the work world. And so between... Finishing my degree in 2001, and finally getting a lead on this work full-time in 2005, I continued to sort of work as a management consultant, and I was promoted a few times there. Um, So I learned to manage. And when this opportunity presented itself, it did so in a sideways manner. I was at my high school reunion, and... (laughs) One of my classmates, who I had not really seen since high school, was president of the James J. Hill Library that I mentioned. His wow. name is Sam Richter. And Sam and I began a conversation, and it was Sam that said, how'd you like to start an ethics center here? And I said, I've done the, the business planning for an ethics center. We need some money. And he and I worked for two years to secure a grant from a philanthropist that he knew hmm. and to persuade the board of directors to whom he reported that this would be a good idea. And in June of 2007, that came to fruition with the Hill Center. So it was a sideways path. <laughs> was this uh,
0: Sam, you said his name yeah. was? Was uh, Sam anyone you were particularly close to in
1: high school? We were we were friendly. We were yeah. members of the same youth group. We mm. knew each other. But no, we were not buddies, I would say. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, my, I'm. He's a much closer friend now than he I'm was sure. in high school. After yeah. having started this together, and I worked for him until he ultimately left the Hill Center to pursue his own opportunities. But that path, I think, is instructive to the extent that, at every point, I was working towards something, and in almost every instance, where I ended up was not where I thought I was going. Hmm. But the plan was still important because if I hadn't had the plan, I wouldn't have been moving forward. And if I hadn't have been moving forward, I wouldn't have found the opportunities ultimately, that ultimately presented themselves. If I hadn't been talking to rotary clubs, trying to sell to businesses, I wouldn't have met police and fire chiefs and realized that this was an area where the ideas that I'm very invested in could really find a great home. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't have been working toward doing business strategy i wouldn't have found the opportunity to do leadership development which as it turns out is the most rewarding work i've ever done yeah so having a plan is important but also being flexible and recognizing that we need to change the plan is as important as having a plan
0: I yeah think. because you can always set out in a particular direction but you know if the winds change you you can still be a uh, Heading across the ocean, you know, still heading east, but maybe taking a slightly different route. That's exactly right. Gets you to the same place, more or less. That's right.
1: Sometimes very different. My (laughs) late father used to say, you can't tell looking forward whether a fork in the road is a minor detour or a total change in direction. All you can do is make the best choice you can in the moment and then go with the results.
0: How do you face that fear of uncertainty?
1: Um, As I've gotten older, it has gotten easier. Hmm um i also speaking of my father when he was about 50 and i was in my 20s i said dad i want to be confident like you are i want to be comfortable in my skin i want to be able to have a feeling like i can take whatever i need to take to get to to make it in the world and he said I'm sorry, but you can't have that at 20. It's very rare to have that at 20. (laughs) Um, Dang. (laughs) Right. You know, I don't know if he's right. I've met some people who are 20 and 25 and 30 who are highly confident and they seem to be doing great. Hmm. But for me, that wasn't my path. At 50 now, just about, I understand what he was saying. But I also think part of facing that fear is making that fear your friend and recognizing that just because I'm afraid doesn't mean anything's wrong. And for some people, it is an act of faith. For other people, it's an act of confidence. But to find in yourself and in others, the people around you, and in whatever other supports are important to you, spiritual or otherwise, recognizing that some days I'm just going to have to work even though I'm afraid. Mm. And that hasn't gone away. There are still times when I will engage in a project, or approach a conversation. I have to give someone hard advice that they don't want to hear, and I'm very afraid. But I pause and I ask myself, is this fear really an indication that there's danger, or is it something else? And if it's danger, I'll respond to the danger. And if it's something else, I'll say, well, I guess I have to do this afraid. Yeah. And so you become comfortable being afraid. I, I don't believe that courage is the absence of fear. I think the courage is the capacity to do what you need to do despite your fears.
0: To throw something into the mix, taking a, a real world example, well, I mean, let's talk responsibilities because sometimes, for instance, at my place of employment, I work at a restaurant currently, and there's a couple of people there who want to travel, and all I ever hear them talk about is travel. and <laughs> And I'll say, well, Why don't you just go? Why don't don't you do this? Because they've been working and have the financial means to. But uh, there's a sense of responsibility to this job and to stick around and to do these things, which is fine if, if that plays into your interest in the long term. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is for young people with a lot of possible options, you know, many different doors to choose, how would you suggest they... Uh, look at weighing those options and viewing their perceived responsibilities?
1: I think it's a great question and it's very individual. Hmm. Um, There are people who are best off getting on a track and being highly responsible and pursuing that track in a linear fashion. Hmm. And there are people whose lives will be anything but linear. And I am one of those latter people, as I think are you. Yes. <laughs> and so your adventures are informing who you are and they're informing the rest of your life. Hmm. So that's a really critical investment for you right now. When I was your age, I felt more desire to be linear. And I think that was a mistake. For me, I wish I had traveled. I wish I had said, to heck with it. I don't particularly need creature comforts. I'm gonna go make something happen and see what I can see and learn what I can learn. But I didn't, I functioned in a much more linear fashion. There are pros and cons for both. And I know people that were absolutely non-linear at that time who wished they had gotten on a track because it was hard for them to settle down. And I know people that were profoundly linear who have deep regrets That they didn't, that they squandered that youthful time. But I also know lots of people who say that's the path I took. Um, One of the things I will say is um, I never miss an opportunity to be childlike. Mm -hmm. Really. Because even my work... I get to hang out with firefighters and cops. They have had me. They have hung me off buildings. They have put me in burning buildings. I have been chewed on by police dogs. Um, you know, I have listened as a police dog hunted me down in an abandoned building while I hid from him, which was frankly one of the scariest things I've ever done. Um, so you know, I play Legos with my kids. My youngest son is lean and eight years old and he loves to indoor rock climb and Mm. I am not lean and not eight years old and so my (laughs) rock climbing is much less elegant than his but I do it anyway and so I don't think there's any point at which we have to say darn I wasted my life. I think that's up to us Mm. and so we can have fun at any point and we can pursue our interests at any point. I deeply regret that I haven't traveled very much. Now, with kids, to include them in the travels, it becomes very expensive and and a big strategic decision. But there will be times and opportunities, and there have been, for me to get out there and see other parts of the world that I haven't seen. Hmm. So that's becoming a priority for me. Um, But there are people who've traveled like crazy who would say, You know, developing career and creating a business that's self-sustainable, that's a priority for me. Well, I'm sort of doing that, done that, actually. The (laughs) business is sustaining us. Um, So I think it's really about whatever choices you make make them full on yeah. recognize the pros and cons live with the live with the cons maximize the pros take notes learn from it and realize that you can always change direction
0: Th- that really calls back to your overarching philosophy with ELA because you talk about being proactive and looking to do good rather than avoiding the bad and what you're saying here is don't live life worrying about what happens if you do this versus that. Just make the choice full on, whatever you do, and it'll turn out however it needs to turn out. It's being proactive and, and uh, view- viewing this in a positive way rather than avoiding the negative.
1: I could not have said that better myself, and I had not made that connection. So thank you. That's a really good <laughs> insight. But you're right. There's a coherence to how I think we ought to be and how I think life is. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Switching gears slightly... Um, in in that last bit you brought up your business and i'm wondering how exactly you grew it and have been able to sustain it over these past uh several years yeah, well um, the
1: business is seven years old
0: seven years old and that's not including the precursor correct, correct. okay
1: with the precursor cursor, it's 10 years
0: so w- when you made the transition to ela well let's just let's just start
1: from that point When I made the transition from the Hill Center to ELA, I had a book of business, um, clients and engagements that was about 70% of what I needed it to be to sustain my family and to work with the contractors I was working with and to pay them what they expected and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is for this kind of business, uh, we develop client relationships Principally by public speaking and having people who are interested engage us in conversation Hmm. And so I look for lots of opportunities to speak We have multiple lines of business We have leadership development that we do in organizations Where we will come into a fire department or a police department And work with our leadership team over a period of months We might also do that in an insurance agency or an accounting firm Or um, uh, a uh, plastics company all all actual examples, right? Huh. In every instance we learn their world well enough to be of service and we remain curious about how our principles really apply to the particular challenges our clients are facing. We also do work that is not specific to a single client organization. We work with associations to provide leadership academies where they bring members from multiple member member organizations to one place. And there, it's really about building a network of mutually dependent leaders who get to know each other. So we're building their network while they're learning together. And I do speaking and stand-up training. So some of the work I do is just simply getting hired by an agency or an organization or a company to come and teach a class. So from that mix of businesses, ah, and also we do strategy work. I mentioned that as well. So an organization where stakeholder relationships are critical to their strategy might engage us to come up with strategies to strengthen those stakeholder relationships. So from that broad mix of business, we do public speaking, we talk about the work that we do, and we develop client relationships. And the more client relationships we develop, thankfully, the more referrals we get from client to client. And so it has grown very organically. The way we stimulate that growth is by more public speaking. I have not been successful with display advertising. We haven't been particularly invested in um, online advertising. Mostly because it's hard to know who to target. We're looking Mm -hmm. for people who like these ideas and believe that we could be of service to them. So it's much better to put those ideas out there and then connect with people who resonate with it.
0: Yeah, to to move from one client to their recommendation and so on and so forth. That's right. So when you begin a new relationship with a client and you go in uh, as a consultant what do you look for? Like you said, you have these conversations with them, talk about their challenges, but when you're getting to know their work environment and the issues that they're facing, uh, what what are you paying attention to? I think this might be a way for young people in business or in art to take a look at their own organizations and maybe highlight this, these same things.
1: Absolutely. When I'm preparing to serve a client. First of all, we do our best work in teams, so I'll be working with a teammate or two. Mm -hmm. Often I work alone, but the best work, I think, is when when we work in teams. Um, We are seeking to understand that client's goals, both large, strategic, and also very tactical, the challenges that they're facing, the way that leadership is done in the organization, and what the followers of the organization think and feel and share about their leaders. Hmm. <laughs> and we're looking for ways to stimulate improvements that are consistent with who that client really is and who they aspire to be. So in some organizations, that's very conceptual work. Let's clarify your purpose and your mission and your values. In other organizations, it's very practical, not conceptual work at all. It's teaching listening skills. It's teaching better communication techniques. It may be healing some relationships that are badly broken among organization members so that they can move forward more effectively together. It could be mediation um, of disputes and so forth so that we can put the past behind us and move forward. So the solutions become pretty unique pretty customized but those are the things that we're looking at to try to develop that solution
0: yeah and to inject a listener question um someone asked me to to, well someone asked me to pose this when you see issues with morale or motivation how do you go about changing those sorts of things keep uh how do you look at keeping people working hard over the long term
1: First of all, I do believe that ultimately we are responsible for our own motivation. Hmm. I, don't, I think it's pretty hard to motivate someone else unless they want to be motivated. <laughs> but with that said, we can do an awful lot to demotivate people. right? Um, we can create environments where, first of all, people don't have a strong sense of purpose. It's very demotivating. We can demotivate people by removing their autonomy and making them a pair of hands executing someone else's will on someone else's time for someone else's purposes. That's very demotivating. Hmm. We can demotivate people by removing opportunities to learn and grow from the work. So now let's turn that 180 <laughs> degrees. How do you motivate people? You create conditions where they understand why what they're doing is important. You know, I the most mechanical job I ever had was stacking cinder blocks on pallets. They came off the assembly line and I and a partner standing on opposite sides of the line, stacked pallets. And it wasn't nearly as bad a job as you would think. And the reasons absolutely followed the motivational pattern I just described. First of all, um, they gave us lots of autonomy. They told us what the pallet pattern was, and they let us set the speed of the line, and they gave us a bonus for speed, and they docked our pay if the pallets were not stacked properly. So they created waste. They broke the, the, the blocks that we were stacking. Mm. So we knew what our, what our goal was, and it was up to us to get it done. Mm. And they left us alone to do the work. Second, and this is interesting, when they knew what buildings, projects, our blocks were going into, they told us. And I wouldn't have actually thought that mattered until I experienced it. But you know what, knowing that I'm building a Best Buy in Menominee made a difference to me. Even though those blocks are going somewhere, but knowing that those blocks are going to build a building that I could go look at, and sometimes I did, That made a difference to me. And they showed some appreciation. You know, this wasn't a job where we had opportunities to learn and grow. It really wasn't. But they did show appreciation. On a particularly hot day, they would drive around in a pickup. And someone would throw us an ice-cold Coke out of a cooler. And they would say, thanks. You know, we appreciate your work on today. Nice. Once in a while. Yeah, yeah. It didn't cost them anything to speak of. But it made a huge difference. So the blocking and tackling of motivation really is... If the work is creative, and this is taken right from a book called Dan, Dan Pink's book, Drive, The Surprising Secret of What Motivates Us. If the work is creative and variable, we're motivated by purpose and autonomy and the capacity for mastery. If the work is mechanical, we're motivated by empathy, someone recognizing, feeling the pain with us, reminding us of our sense of purpose, and giving us as much freedom as they can to, to do the work. And sure. so you think about a restaurant, Those restaurants that are really successful are restaurants where people can learn and grow, where people see it as an opportunity to be somewhat creative, whether you're in the front of the house or the back of the house, where even if the work is highly structured, like we're doing our salad prep, you know what? There's an expectation that you know how to do the salad prep, and we're going to leave you alone to do it. And if you and and um, you know, if there are problems with our supply, we expect you to tell us that so we can remedy them. Otherwise, we expect you know, we expect the the bins in the walk-in to be ready when we open and do your thing, right? Those are the jobs that people like Yeah. as opposed to someone hovering over us and saying, you know, have you done the romaine yet? Well, no, I'm doing the spinach now, but I'll do the romaine next. Well, no, I mean, make sure you get the romaine done. I know I got to get the romaine done, right? It isn't all that different, right? Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. And
0: uh unfortunately speaking of, of restaurants, I got to get off to work pretty soon, so Fair let's enough. start to tie some of this together. Good. Um What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self, 18 to 21, anywhere in that
1: range? What advice would I give to my 18-year-old self? I would say spend less time worrying because you really don't know what to worry about. Most of the things I worried about were absolutely not real. That's awesome. (laughs) And I would say um, appreciate the moments and time that you have because... I honestly didn't realize how much fun I was having, except in retrospect. Hmm. If I had been conscious of that, I probably would have enjoyed myself even more, Hmm. and I might have learned more along the way, and I would have said to me, travel because i didn't do that and i do in fact regret that when i was footloose and when i could travel very inexpensively happily i was too busy working jobs and trying to get through school and doing those kinds of things Hmm. so that's the advice i would have given myself now if i've been a different kid i might have (laughs) given a different advice to someone else yeah what
0: books you can mention your own here of course uh thinking aloud is the title thank you yes Um, what are some notable books that have that have influenced you in your own life? Books you might recommend to others?
1: I have I have a bibliography of books on my website that I would point people to. The website is www.ethinact.com. And you were kind to mention my book Thinking Aloud: Reflections on Ethical Leadership. It's available through that website, but I also maintain a bibliography annotated of all kinds of books of Mm. interest. Just off the top of my head right now, because it was in the paper recently, the author passed away, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is an awesome book. It's a fun, interesting inquiry into value by Robert Persig, um, a local author as it happens. I really like pulp detective fiction. I find it very relaxing and enjoyable. Some of the dark, violent stuff. And so that's a... I mean, I would say um, whatever your interests, have some light reading interests too. And another great book that I read along the lines of our conversation is Shop Class as Soulcraft. It's by Matthew Crawford who earned a PhD in political philosophy and got an awesome job at a think tank in Washington, the job, and then he chucked it to become a motorcycle mechanic working on classic bikes in Richmond, Virginia. And the whole book is about looking at how we as a society have neglected the kind of learning that takes place from the work that you do with your hands. Hmm. And he begins the book talking about how um, there's a glut of used industrial arts equipment from shop classes all over the country high schools are selling off their woodworking and metalworking equipment and so it's out there Mm. and he laments that those are great ways for people to learn and i could not agree more i am not gifted with my hands but the projects and things that i do with my hands provide me with insights that just selling words and time never could and so shop classes Soulcraft is an excellent book excellent
0: yeah who else in the community, or even looking nationally,
1: are you impressed by these days?
0: Anyone who's doing good work that comes to mind?
1: Someone I have come to regard as something of a hero is uh, Brian Stevenson, who is a law professor at uh, NYU and the director of an association um, through which he works to exonerate people who were wrongly convicted and are on death row Wow! and his work uh, he is african-american and his work um, transcends the challenges that we face in our country around race and class and poverty and he pursues that work actively and vigorously and he writes about it and speaks about it eloquently and movingly and um, he is someone that i've been utterly uh, moved by recently
0: amazing That is definitely someone I will have to learn more about.
1: Good. Brian Stevenson.
0: And uh, you mentioned your website a moment ago, but maybe we could hear that once more and uh, any other places people can find and learn more about the work you're doing.
1: Thank you very much. The website is the primary place. And then, of course, your podcast as well. (laughs) Um, I'm honored by the opportunity to to be on this podcast. My website is www.ethinact.com. A-C-T com. It's a contraction of Ethical Leaders in Action.
0: And are you on social media at all? I think you have a Twitter feed. We have right? a Twitter
1: feed, yeah. um, and I am on LinkedIn, and I keep my Facebook personal, so it isn't related to Ethical Leaders in Action. It's not particularly active either, frankly.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, Chad, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure. And thank I hope, you. And uh, I hope we have another chance to speak again soon. Me
1: too, very much.
0: All right, folks. That's a wrap. You can visit ethenact.com. Dot com to learn more about the services that ethical leaders in action provides and also pick up a copy of chad's book thinking aloud i have one for myself one that my father actually provided for me and i would highly recommend it to reiterate something chad said to highlight it i'll quote whatever choices you make make them full-on recognize the pros and cons live with the cons maximize the pros take notes learn from it and realize that you can always change direction. End quote. Whatever you do, do it full on. There is a lot of work to be done and a lot of fun to be had at the same time, so I hope you are doing something you enjoy and continually improving on it. As far as we know, we have this one life to lead, so live it to the fullest. Thank you to Josh Johnson for providing the opening track to this podcast. Find him on SoundCloud, He's at Saxophone Capone. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, finding them useful or valuable in any way, I hope you are, visit ChanceByChance.com. It was looking a little bare, so I recently revamped the website. It's pretty simple stuff, but I updated the About page to give a little more information about my inspiration in starting the podcast and my goals in pursuing it. There's also a support page on that website. That'll bring you to iTunes and Patreon, links to both of those accounts. If you can rate or review the show on iTunes, it'll help new listeners to find it, so that's greatly appreciated. And Patreon is a way to give any sum of money of your financial resources to the podcast. Every bit of it goes right back into the podcast and enables me to branch out in this work that I'm doing Thank you to the supporters I have so far. And if you aren't currently supporting me in either of those methods, please consider doing so. And just as well, share it with your friends, your coworkers, your families, the people in your own companies, organizations, bands, etc. Until next time, thank you all for listening.